Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Uh, Joining me this morning is Dr. Alan Buchanan, author of Our Moral Fate, Evolution and Escape from Tribalism. He's a professor of philosophy at Duke University. Is tribalism the political and cultural divisions between us and them an inherent part of our basic moral psychology? Many scientists link tribalism and morality, arguing that the evolved moral mind is tribalistic. Any escape from tribalism, according to this thinking, would be partial and fragile because it goes against the grain of our nature. Dr. Alan Buchanan offers a counter-argument. The moral mind is highly flexible, capable of both tribalism and deeply inclusive moralities, depending on the social environment in which the moral mind operates. Dr. Buchanan is a fellow of the Hastings Center and a professor of philosophy of international law at the Dixon Poon School of Law at King's College, London. Welcome to the show, Dr. Buchanan. Nice to have you here. Thanks for having me. Uh, well, I think quick, uh, uh, it obviously uh, is timely talking about our moral fate in the context of what's happening in our country right now politically. So maybe we should put you know this argument or this discussion in the context of our right now in terms of our government, our political sp- uh, system, and uh, what's led up to this election. Yeah, I think that's a. Uh, That's exactly to the point. I think what's happening is that what I call tribalism is driving out democracy. It's making democracy impossible. Uh, And I think that's uh, a a horrible feature of it. You know, people talk about polarization, but I think uh, polarization is just a matter of there being an increasing distance between groups on their substantive positions on policy or values. Tribalism is much worse than that. You and I can have large disagreements about policy or values and yet respect one another and be willing to reason with one another, to try to meet in the middle, to make compromise and bargaining seriously. Tribalism rules all of that out. Let's talk, can we take tribalism? Okay, it rules all that out and that's where we are right now. It's, it's, it's us or them, right? It's right or wrong. There's, it's, it's, it's aggressive. It's, there's no room for compromise. Uh, how did we get to this point? Because that's where we, it seemed, as I said in the beginning, I mean, that seems to me where we are, you know, Republicans versus Democrats. I have friends who won't, who are Democrats who won't talk to Republicans. <laughs> A perfect example of tribalism. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. You know, I wish I had a, a, a completely satisfactory answer to the question how we got there. But I think the basic idea is that tribalism is driven by fear. And when humans are fearful, they tend to herd together, just like a lot of other animals do. And they tend to look for uh, a cause of their fear, a bad guy. And that turns out to be some opposing group. So then you get this kind of separation of the world into us versus them. That's the beginning of the tribalistic mentality. Well, was there a time, say way back, the beginning of civilization, when we needed that kind of response when it served us well, but we haven't... Exactly. Okay. Let's talk about that. That's right. That's why, that's why I begin the book uh, with a bit of evolutionary theory about the evolution of morality in human beings. And you're absolutely right. In the earliest environments in which the moral mind emerged, it was a very harsh environment, and other groups, other tribes, other uh, groups of other societies presented a real threat, and we developed responses to that threat 
hostility, preemptive aggression, distrust of the other. But what's happened is that tribalism has evolved. Now we direct those negative attitudes toward groups within our own society, whereas in the primeval form of tribalism, it was literally other groups, other societies. So tribalism is, is important to think of in evolutionary terms from two aspects. One, we have to think about the role that it plays in our evolved moral psychology. And two, we have to recognize that tribalism itself has evolved over time. So if we're talking about moral progress, and you say that does exist, we have the possibility for moral progress, that we can get better at this. How do we do it? We have to have the right context. We have to provide the right conditions, you say in your book, for uh, encouraging this moral potential. Um, We have to, and that we're able to do that. We have the capacity to do that. Yeah, I think that's right. I think we have the potential to take charge of our moral fate in the sense of, shaping what sort of morality is predominant in our society and what kind of moral agents we are. But the moral mind responds differently to different stimuli in different environments. And human beings are what evolutionary theorists call niche constructors. They construct their own environments. And that means that we have at least the the hope that we can learn enough about the relationship between the moral mind and various environments and then we can try to engineer our environments to get the most out of our moral potential and to suppress our tribalistic predispositions. So give us examples of that, like how we can control our moral environments, our social environments. How do we do it? Give us, you know, put a face on it. Yeah, well, I think in terms of trying to, to mitigate or reduce tribalism, what we need to do is to think about how we can change our political institutions so that they give people strong incentives for bargaining and compromise, for meeting in the middle, for listening to the opposition and reasoning with them. And that would mean uh, some fairly fundamental changes. Uh, It might mean, for one thing, having more than two parties. Having just two parties means you just have to choose one big bundle or another bundle. And as the, the bundles become increasingly differentiated, it's harder to get people to meet in the middle. Uh, that would be one thing. Another might be switching to a system of proportional representation, which again means you have to have coalition governments, basically. Um, uh, another uh, institutional innovation might be requiring uh, that, at least for some kinds of important legislation, you have a supermajority rule, like two-thirds or three-quarters. And that means that you have to recruit people from the other side to get legislation passed that you want. Uh, these are just some, some beginning suggestions, but Basically, anything, any change in the environment that encourages people to listen to each other and engage as reasonable beings and bargain and compromise, that's what we need. Um, and we don't have that at this point. Uh, so we need to think hard about how to sort of engage in what I call moral institutional design. Well, uh, moral institutional design, let's say, you know, for the past four years, We've had exactly the opposite, haven't we? I mean, we've sort of gone down. We've we've regressed because of our yeah, lack of so. moral leadership. Let's say. I mean, it's it seems to me we were never we're in a worse position than we've ever been in. And, and is that related just to one man or one president, or how does this all come together? Well, how did we, I keep 
maybe going back to this, how in the past four years we've really gotten nasty and we've really gotten mean and aggressive and hateful. And it seems to me it's really been exacerbated over the past four years. I mean, we always had Republicans and Democrats and disagreements and in the 70s and we had riots and we had, you know, all all of those kinds of things. But there's something different about it right today. There's something really, I don't want to use the word, yeah, evil, but yeah, can you... Talk to us about that. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm with you, Catherine. I, I, you know, I've, I've never seen anything like this in my lifetime anyway. And I think that uh, it's a mistake to think that this was caused by Trump. I think Trump has exacerbated the tribalistic tendency. I think he's a, 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 a sort of primary example of a tribalistic person. But I don't think that uh, he could have come to power if there hadn't already been a great deal of tribalism in the environment uh, before he came on the scene. So I think you have to look back further, and it might be that a, a, a beginning of this uh, would be uh, the sort of Southern strategy, the development of the Southern strategy by the Republican Party, which really uh, used the, the slogan of law and order as a kind of code for uh, racial politics, I think. Uh, this was a time when uh, there had been advances in civil rights uh, for African Americans and advances in rights for women. And wherever you have those kinds of of advances, you have losers. You have people who lose status and lose power. And in a democracy, they don't go away. You can't line them up against the wall and shoot them, as you would in a revolutionary country. Uh, Instead, they're still your fellow citizens. And their uh, anxiety, their fear, their sense of loss of status and power has to be addressed by uh, a political party, and I don't think the Democrats have done that. So I would I would date the 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 surge of tribalism. I mean, tribalism has always been there. You're absolutely right, but the surge of tribalism back earlier than uh, four years. So how okay? So back it's it was before then. It was just sort of the the timing. It was it was uh, not just obviously one person who um, who caused what's happened now. So how do we mitigate it? Let's say you know now we have a new we have a new president. We're going to have a uh, uh, new leadership. What can the new leadership do to, I, to, I guess, to mitigate some of this stuff that's been happening as we've been discussing? That's this tribalistic behavior on both on both sides of both sides of the aisle. Well, I think, for one thing, the president can act uh, more like a decent human being who's respectful of people that he disagrees with and can elevate the discourse. I think that's one thing a president can do, but the president can also uh, engage in politics, which in one sense Trump never did. That is, uh, Biden knows how to operate with Congress. He knows how to bargain and and compromise and and wheel and deal, and that's exactly what we need and uh, so I, I'm hopeful that it, it may be the beginning of improvement. But, you know, I think this has already gone so far that, uh, you know, we, we can't be sure that we're ever going to get out of it. It's kind of like an arms race, right? I mean, once you, you've gotten into the tribalistic mode, if one side foregoes tribalistic behavior, they're at a disadvantage. It's like unilateral disarmament in an arms race, right? So I think it has a kind of... of 
horrible stability, and it's going to be hard to break it. Now, one way it might be the stability of tribalism might be broken is if we just bottom out. If it gets so bad that everybody recognizes that there's got to be some kind of fundamental change. I hope we don't have to go that far, but if that's one possibility. I mean, as you're, that's scary uh, to me. It's terrifying. As you're talk, I mean, as as you're describing it, I mean, um, it, that I mean, it's really scary stuff. Take an example. I mean, looks what has happened to us. Let's go. Let's talk about the pandemic and and uh, COVID nineteen. This mask wearing versus anti mask wearing, because that's that's. I think that's symbolic of all of what we've been talking about, right? It's those who wear you're masks. And, right. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, look, I think that uh, what you've got to realize about tribalism is that tribalistic discourse is not about seeking the truth or trying to determine what's best for our society. It's about sorting and signaling, sorting people into us versus them and signaling your allegiance to a particular group. And I think that's exactly what's going on with the mask wearing. Mask wearing is a matter of signaling, right? And I know people who refuse to wear a mask because they associate mask wearing with the left or with with the Democrats. And so they're giving a, a public signal that they reject those other people, and they're giving a signal of their loyalty and identity with a particular group. And it's crazy that, that something like a public health measure should become so politicized in the worst sense of the term, and that people would be willing to give that signal, even if it means putting themselves at risk. Now, of course, they rationalize away the risk, but nonetheless, they are putting themselves at risk. How did that, I guess, how does that happen? I mean, how did it become so political? I mean, it's just, these are signals, you say, the mask wearing versus the anti-mask wearing. We've never had that happen before when it comes to public health issues. Is this because of the message we got from the the White House that this is? Or, I think or, certainly, uh, yeah. I think in this case, I really think it's a matter of uh, the example set by Trump and the rhetoric that he used, uh, and the constant discrediting of people who have really good credentials, who really are experts on uh, virology. And this is another feature, I think, at least of the distinctively American kind of tribalism, and that is it has a, a strange kind of populist attitude, at least so far as tribalism on the right goes, a kind of rejection of what I call credentialed expertise. I mean, Trump says over and over again that he knows more than the Joint Chiefs of Staff, that he knows more than the scientists about climate change, uh, and, and this is, uh, 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 I, I think, a, maybe a distinctive aspect of the, the American version of tribalism, this kind of um, know-nothing, anti-scientific attitude. I know during the whole course of these past nine months or since March 16th or whenever, I, I've just had to focus on, this is what Dr. Fauci is telling us. I'm going to focus on that because everything that he has said and his look as has come true uh, and um, sort of like and, and that's been my my focus I guess and um, focusing on science and it's it's difficult I mean I guess it's been difficult 70 million people voted for Donald Trump right so they don't see it that way 
Yeah, I mean, this is the, you know, there's a, there's a larger background issue here, and that is the kind of rejection of science that we're seeing, uh, especially on the part of the of people in the Republican Party, uh, political leaders uh, in the Republican Party, and it's it's everything from rejecting evolution to rejecting uh, anthropogenic climate change, and I find it really frightening. I mean, Catherine, there's a tremendous irony here. For the first time in history, we have vast amounts of information available and available cheaply and easily, but we're not utilizing that information. It's it's sitting there idle. It's not being taken up by politicians and put to good use, and that's very, very disappointing. I mean, you know, we, we have uh, what you might call the scientific community, which is Developed over time, it's got practices and norms which really facilitate gaining knowledge much better than any other way of gaining knowledge that we know of. And that's a wonderful accomplishment, but it means nothing if the public or the people in power disregard the knowledge that the scientific community produces. I I just, I, I read something about a nurse in one of the hospitals who, you know, was sitting with her dying patients and, and she particularly one that she talks about that a person who's dying and saying, you know, I thought this was a hoax. I was told it was a hoax and I really believed that the pandemic or that COVID-19 was a hoax. And, um, and they died believing that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there are, I'm sure there are many, many people who have died or had serious illnesses because they took the president at his word. Uh, and, you know, one of the things that I find most troubling about President Trump is he seems to have a complete disregard for the truth. I mean, he, he says things and he feels no responsibility for backing them up with evidence. He just thinks he can say whatever he wants. And I find it remarkable that his hardcore adherents don't seem to think that evidence matters. What about the senators? I mean, Trump's one person, maybe a narcissistic personality, yeah. whatever. What about these senators? Where are they coming from? Well, I think that uh, in the case of Republican senators, not all of them, but maybe the majority of them, they've just made a crucial decision. They've decided that their fate, their ability to stay in power, depends upon aligning themselves with Trump. That is, that the only voters they can really count on are Trump's base. And once they've made that decision, then, you know, they've really lost their moral compass. Well, then, if they've lost their moral compass, we're talking, then, so then what, I guess, how do we, I keep getting back to the same question, how, in the immediate, in the, right now, how do we get ourselves out of that? I mean, how can we influence those senators? We're going to have, yes, we're going to have a Democratic president is in uh, you know within the next six months, what do we do? I don't mean over time, like you're saying, we need different parties. Yeah, we yeah. need to change yeah. our government. I mean, that's a that takes a long, long time to be able to accomplish those right. kinds of things if we do it right. So, what do we do now? Well, I think I think that uh, again, in the short term, the best uh, effort will be just to have a president who who acts like. He respects the opposition and who doesn't descend into the kind of shabby coarse rhetoric and behavior that we've seen from the president in the last four years. Uh, that's a start. But as I said, I think it's going to take, uh, in the longer term, it's going to take some institutional 
changes. Uh, by the way, one thing we haven't mentioned so far, Catherine, is the role of uh, the internet and social media in uh, tribalism. I think you know you asked earlier, you know, when did this start? Well, I think it really it's it, it started probably you know 450,000 years ago with the development of the moral mind. But I think that it really accelerated with the advent of uh, social media and the internet. And uh, I think the problem is that a lot of people just haven't learned how to be savvy consumers of the so-called information that comes over the Internet. Now, maybe it just takes time. Maybe there'll be a process of cultural evolution and we'll learn to be more discerning in what we, we take from social media. But so far, it's really alarming. I mean, people will believe almost anything that they see coming from sites that they regard as trustworthy, even though they have basically no basis for regarding as trustworthy. I mean, think about all of the crazy kinds of conspiracy theories that we're seeing now. Well, this brings me to my next question, actually, because you're a professor, you're with young people all the time, you know, you're with people in their in their 20s. Um, and yes, I think that's true. I think social media will evolve and we'll learn how to handle it and, and, and that will change. But so we're talking about, let's say, university students. Where do they fit into all of this? Are, are they as gullible as we are as the general population, you know, with all of these, you know, all the stuff that's on social media that everyone believes, or is it different for that demographic? Um, I think there's some evidence that uh, younger people are a little less susceptible to fake news. Uh, the studies that I've read indicate that people over 65 are much more likely to uh, retweet fake news items than younger people. Uh, I think that, that generally younger people in, in our society, and especially uh, people in universities, tend to be a little more inclusive in their moralities, more tolerant, uh, for example, toward transgender people, gay people, uh, people of other races, etc. So I think there's some hope in that respect. And I think that uh, they're already, because they use social media so often and so adeptly, I think they're already beginning to evolve new norms for how to handle the, the so-called information, whereas I think that uh, the older population, uh, they're just not up to speed to be able to do that. Yeah, so that population, uh, which includes myself, we're going to be dying out soon. <laughs> <laughs> Let's be, and so you know, you're going to have this whole <laughs> new demographics coming in, which which will, I guess, lead us in a more positive direction. You're saying they're much more discerning. I they're hope much, so. I, I, yeah. you know, I I really wouldn't wouldn't bet a lot of money on that, but I think there's a reason to be hopeful about it. Oh, also, by the way, speaking of university, I'm no longer at Duke University. I'm at the University of Arizona, and I also oh, okay. have a, an appointment at Oxford University, and, and I'm no longer at King's College London. I. Uh, I retired from that and from the Duke position, but just a minor point. Oh, okay, Kevin, great. Could I, repeat the, could I repeat the title of the book for those who came in late? It's called Absolutely. You can repeat the title of the book, Evolution. and you can also give us websites to go to sure. for more information about, you know, anyway, where we can purchase the book and, and, and uh, what we can learn more about what you're doing. So go ahead, yeah. Great. It's called Our Moral Fate, Evolution and the Escape from Tribalism, and it's published by MIT Press. And if you go to the MIT website, you can find it and find out uh, some blurbs about it, information about it. And also, I'll be doing a number of other uh, interviews and, and podcasts and blogs in the future. So um, I hope uh, people will tune in to some of that. 
Yeah. So what's the website? That's the one website we can go to, or are there others as well? Or uh, I, I would just I would first go to the MIT website, and I'm developing other websites now. But if you go to the MIT website and just uh, type in the title "Our Moral Fate" or my name, Alan Buchanan, uh, you'll you'll find a lot of information and some links to other things. So, Dr. Buchanan, so what else uh, in terms? What has been the response? Uh, uh, from your book, I guess is the question. Uh, well, uh, so far it's been it's been really good. Uh, it's mainly been uh, in the scholarly community, but uh, thanks to to you, I'm hoping I'll, I'll reach a wider audience. Uh, there have been a number of symposia and conferences already uh, in the works uh, uh, here and abroad for uh, discussing the book. Uh, so I'm very happy about that. Uh, but I'm, I'm trying to. This was my this was my first effort, really, to write a more accessible book. I, I'm I'm really good at writing uh, ponderous scholarly tomes. Uh, I've been groomed and reinforced to do that all my adult life. But this is an attempt to to do something that's uh, more accessible to, to you know the the broadly uh, interested public, and I hope it succeeds. I hope it's readable. Um, uh, but, you know, you'll, the readers will have to judge that for themselves. So far, I've gotten good responses as to accessibility and, and readability. Oh, well, that's good. That's great, because that would be more my audience, obviously, as, as you know. So yeah. uh, we're not necessarily, it's not academic and scholars, et cetera, but yet for the general public who needs to be reading these kinds of things or having access to this kinds of these this kind of information, I should say, to be able to, yeah, to be a more discerning public. That's what we need. I mean, I think that's a beginning if we want to go in the right direction. Yeah, I think that's right. I think, I think you know, a beginning is to, to get larger numbers of people to understand what tribalism is. I mean, the, the term is bandied about a, a lot, and so is the term polarization, but there's very little analysis of it. And People have failed to realize that it's really deeply rooted in our moral psychology, and that makes it more formidable. It doesn't mean that the situation is hopeless, but you have to take that into account. So one of the things I hope I'm doing in the book is providing a better understanding of what tribalism is and what its origins are. Because I think you have to have that if you're going to have a chance of eliminating it or, or at least reducing it. Right. Very well said. And great having you on the show today. And I think we accomplished some of that, at least in this short half hour. Um, and when I've been talking to Dr. Alan Buchanan. Uh, the title of his book is Our Moral Fate, Evolution and the Escape from Tribalism. Thanks so much for being on the show this morning. Thank you. And thanks for the excellent questions and comments. Great. Thanks. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. And you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Mm-hmm. 